Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. Happy 4th of July. Yay, we celebrate our freedom today and uh, just thankful to be with you all in this great country and in this great church. Uh, so just uh, delighted to be with you all. So uh, this morning, uh, we're continuing our study in uh, the book of Romans, making our way. It uh, won't be long now. I don't know how many more weeks, but we're, we're, we're getting there. Uh, so uh, this message is called The Limits of Liberty, Romans chapter 14, uh, verses 13 to 23. You guys having trouble back there with the slides? All right. Well, then we go without. Uh, it's fine. Uh, before we begin, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. There it is. Look at that. That's last week's. <laughs> you know, you gotta be you gotta be able to go with the flow. You know, so let's just go with the flow. Uh, before we go into the Word, uh, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your presence this day. We thank you for your presence over this country, Lord, that you have uh, watched over now for 245 years. And Lord, we're just so grateful uh, for the freedoms that you provide. And Lord, uh, we just uh, ask that you would continue uh, to watch over our country, to guide our country, uh, to guide the leaders of our country, Lord, that you would continue to protect this country, uh, both from uh, terrors uh, that are foreign and from anything that might rise from within. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, uh, we just ask your blessing, Lord, uh, help us to understand the truths that uh, you put in your word, Lord, and help us to apply these things to our lives. So may the Holy Spirit come now, illuminate these truths to us, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, it has been uh, 245 years now, as you know, uh, since the signing of the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia, July 4th. 1776. And, you know, the years leading up to the signing of the Declaration of Independence were very tumultuous years. Uh, the colonists uh, very much hated the idea of taxation without representation, and they uh, resented King George III's tyranny uh, over them. And perhaps the statement that best uh, represents the colonists' sentiment through the 1770s was Patrick Henry's famous statement, give me liberty or give me death. Uh, such was uh, his desire and their desire for liberty. Well, Thomas Jefferson, as you know, took responsibility to write the Declaration of Independence. And uh, if you haven't read it lately, it really is a worthwhile thing to do. It, it takes five minutes to read this thing. It, it's an amazing piece of writing. Uh, and I think uh, we all ought to read it every now and then. So uh, Jefferson announced in the Declaration of Independence uh, that, uh, that, there are, that, that all men are created equal and that we are endowed with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, we know what life is, right? That's easy enough. Uh, but what about liberty? What about the pursuit of happiness? What do these things mean? Well, Merriam-Webster defines liberty as the quality or state of being free, the power to do as one pleases, and freedom from despotic control. So uh, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, then, is the freedom to pursue what makes you happy, within the bounds of the law, without, without uh, interference from government oppression and control. 
And they, that was written now two and a half, almost, centuries ago. And uh, America still stands uh, as the greatest country on earth. And this experiment, uh, our government was never done before, this, this kind of government. And here it is, 245 years later, the greatest country that has ever existed. But liberty has its limits. Uh, and I would argue uh, that one of the greatest threats to our continuing freedom and liberty uh, as a nation is the failure of our citizens to accept any restraints on our freedom whatsoever. That's a dangerous thing. We live in a world now that is what we call the postmodern age. And, and the, the age of postmodernism, if you could characterize it by one thing, it would be that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And so everyone then gets to decide for himself or herself what truth is. Uh, and nobody gets to say, your truth is wrong, your truth is right. Everybody decides for themselves. And so we have individuals then determining what the limits of our liberties are rather than God. And so sinful humans, as you know, uh, we find a way to rationalize anything in our own minds, right? And so we can uh, stretch the boundaries of morality and somehow still call it good uh, because humans will always try to satisfy their depraved desires. And now increasingly what we're seeing is that our Congress and the people who are running for office in Congress have increasingly capitulated to the demands of this unrestrained, unlimited freedom that our citizens seem to want so that they can get elected or so that they can stay in office. And uh, people increasingly, uh, we're seeing morality just go uh, to pot, right? Uh, people want to have sex with whoever they want to have sex with, whenever they want to. And then when the consequences of a disease or a pregnancy come, well, they just abort the baby, right? Simple, simple solution to the problem. Or they decide what gender they feel like being today so that they can compete in women's sports if you're a man or uh, because you, uh, you, you want to go hang out in women's locker rooms or who knows what the, how a depraved mind thinks. But uh, these are the things that we're seeing in our society. And to win elections, uh, these, these congressmen are passing laws that will allow people to do what they want to do, which is participating in gross immorality. And so if our country should ever collapse, uh, I really don't think that it's going to come from a foreign attack, at least not at first. It's going to come from a dead, decaying morality of the people within our society that will deteriorate our society and weaken us to the point that we are uh, vulnerable to foreign attack. Uh, and that would be because of our own unwillingness to curb uh, individual freedoms. Uh, there are, we can do a lot of things. Physically, uh, we're able to do them, but, but should we do them? Uh, you know, that, that's a wholly different question. Uh, and so what will happen, I think, is that uh, historians will note that if this country collapses, it will be because uh, we have lost our morality and a, and a nation with no moral fiber will not last for very long. And theologians will note, along with Paul in Romans chapter 1, that God has withdrawn his hand of protection from us and given us over to the consequences of our sinful choices. So liberty is a really good thing, right? We have had soldiers, hundreds of thousands of them, for 245 years fight and die and continue to fight uh, to protect these freedoms that we have. But liberty has its limits 
God placed limits on our liberty by defining morality throughout his word, right? We know the Ten Commandments. Don't kill, don't steal, have no other gods. And then uh, parts of the law outside of the Ten Commandments. uh, uh, Marriage is between a man and a woman. uh, Forgive others, don't lie. All of these things that, that God puts on us in terms of our morality. These are clear biblical mandates, and there is no room for debate on these things, and yet uh, we are slipping away from these biblical truths. And there are also gray issues. We talked about all of these gray issues that might arise uh, in our sermon last week, Uh, and we have freedom to choose, freedom to decide on these gray matters, whatever they may be. Uh, We talked about food, we talked about uh, use of alcohol, we talked about dancing, and, and various other things. So God places limits on our liberty, though, in gray areas, too, and we need to recognize that. We do have liberty, but one limit on our liberty in gray areas is that we do not exercise this liberty uh, if exercising that liberty will damage another person's faith. And so the question in that case is not, may I, but should I? Should I do it? Because there may be consequences to another believer's faith. So we may be fully convinced in our own mind, and that's a good thing. We need to be fully convinced before we do or don't do something. That's a gray area. But whether we do it or don't do it will depend oftentimes on the setting and who is present and various other circumstances when we're talking about gray areas. So Paul's main point in our passage today is that, yes, we have liberty, but there's a time to exercise it, and there's a time then we should curb our liberty. And the time to curb it is if we're going to cause another believer to stumble. So self-control is not doing something that we actually have the ability to do, something that we may do. And it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the main point, uh, curb your uh, behavior, even if you're allowed to do it for the sake of a younger or a weaker brother who might be caused to stumble. And then there are three reasons why Paul gives this command uh, that support this main principle, uh, all having to do with how the law of love supersedes the law of our own individual liberties in disputable matters. So let's look at the principle first, which is curb your liberty so as not to be a stumbling block. And this is verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in another's way. So the first part of this verse, verse 13, therefore let us not judge one another anymore. Uh, That is a summary statement of what we saw last week in the whole uh, verses 1 through 12 about accept one another. So accept one another, don't judge one another. But it's also now an introduction to this second half of chapter 14. Uh, Don't be a stumbling block. Don't judge one another, uh, but instead uh, don't allow them to have their own opinions regarding uh, non-salvation issues. So we accept one another, uh, let them believe what they want to believe, but now there's a flip side to this, which is you believe what you want to believe, but be careful when you exercise the freedoms that you have. We have the right to our opinion and the right to do certain things uh, in gray areas that God has given us, but we should never allow uh, our convictions about these things to, uh, to serve as a stumbling block to somebody else's faith. We have to know when to exercise our liberty, and we have to know when to curb it. So Paul's illustration was eating. Uh, talked about eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, it was a pagan custom uh, for the the pagan to go out and and slaughter an animal, sacrifice it 
to their gods, and they would burn up part of that animal, but the rest of that animal they would bring to the marketplace, and they would sell that meat to vendors, and the vendors would wrap it up, and they would put it on their table, uh, and they would be selling it in the marketplace, and, and a buyer would come along and would have no idea if that particular piece of meat had been sacrificed to an idol or not. They didn't know where it came from. So if they ate that piece of meat, well, they would be violating their own consciences, and that would be sin. That would be, in their minds, equating themselves with having sacrificed that piece of meat to an idol themselves. So that was very dangerous. Uh, those who Paul called the strong, well, they probably wouldn't have cared about such a thing because they thought that they had the freedom to eat whatever they wanted. So they wouldn't really have cared if that meat had been sacrificed to an idol or not. But the consciences of those who Paul called the weak in the faith would be offended if they had eaten a piece of meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. So put yourself back in the first century. If, if you are among those who Paul called the strong, uh, what should you do? Should you eat that meat in front of your weaker brother or should you not eat that meat in front of your weaker brother? Well, if they had Texas barbecue in Paul's day, uh, what would Paul say? He would say, uh, if you've been invited to your brother or sister's house uh, and, and it's a Texas barbecue, don't bring the brisket. Maybe leave the brisket, let your brother supply the brisket if that's what's necessary, so at least he would know where it's, where it's coming from. Uh, to be loving, to be kind to your brother or sister, you bring the peach cobbler and the ice cream instead. Uh, and that way you would know that you wouldn't be offending your brother's conscience. And so that's what they would do. It's more loving uh, to, to not bring the brisket uh, and, and, and not offend your weaker brother. So the question in Paul's day is to eat or not to eat, right? It's, it's a liberty that, that, that we have in gray issues, but we have to know when to exercise it. It's a matter of will we offend a brother or sister's conscience by eating? And so what we see is that liberty has its limits. Here's the principle. Use your liberty, but not if it's going to be a stumbling block to a brother or sister. And now Paul goes on to give three reasons why we need to curb our liberty. And the first one is this, curb your liberty because Christ died for your brother. I know and, am and I know and am convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of your food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So remember back in verse 5, uh, Paul said, each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. So here Paul is following his own advice. He's fully convinced in his own mind. I know that and I am convinced that nothing is unclean. But others were convinced of exactly the opposite. Others thought that certain things were unclean. And remember, they had followed the Jewish law about food and dietary laws for centuries. This is ingrained in them. It's very hard for them to change their opinion about these things overnight. Now, Paul's talking about food, but what kind of modern-day examples might we come up with? Uh, one is the use of alcohol, right? So that that's a, can be a hot-button issue now. Uh, the Bible doesn't prevent having a drink of alcohol or prohibit it, but it does uh, speak very openly and very often about that it's a sin to be drunk. 
so that's one example. Uh, what about modest dress? You know, you, you're free to wear the clothes you want to wear. Um, but what if whatever you're wearing will cause a brother or sister to stumble? Should you wear it? Should you not wear it? Uh, these are issues that we have to face in our day. And Paul would say, whatever your conviction is about that matter, for the sake of love, you have to lay it down if you're in the presence of a brother or sister who might be offended and who doesn't share our view. And why do we do that? Well, we do it for the sake of love, because the law of love supersedes the law of liberty. Jesus died for our brother or our sister too, and he died for their conscience, whatever it is that they happen to believe about that, and he's given them the freedom to believe that. So the, the most important principle is that we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I just want to remind us where we are in the book of Romans, right? Chapters 1 through 11 were all about uh, what God has done for us in his mercy and showing us our sin problem and then saving us and uh, growing us in the Holy Spirit. And now uh, chapters 12 through 16, in view of those mercies, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And so Offering yourselves as a living a sacrifice means you, you don't climb off the altar uh, when you want to exercise your freedom in a way that might cause a brother or sister to stumble. You have to continue to lay that freedom down. Uh, Jesus saved us while we were still his enemies. He offered himself as a living sacrifice, and it's in gratitude for our salvation that we do the same for others. And part of being a living sacrifice means making sacrifices, right? Sometimes we have to make sacrifices for our brother or sister who doesn't hold to our same convictions. And so <clears throat> whenever we're put in a position where we have to choose between the law of love and the law of liberty, we choose the law of love and we lay down our conviction. That means putting our liberty aside when we're in the presence of somebody who might be offended uh, or injured if we choose to exercise it for love's sake, because we love them, because Christ loved them. And it's not kind or loving to have a drink of alcohol in, some, in front of somebody who you know it personally bothers, that they're convicted that that's not right, or if they have a, happen to have a problem with it themselves, it's not loving to do that. It's really not worth the drink if it's going to cause somebody to stumble. So that's the idea. We, we lay it down for the sake of our brother or sister because the law of love supersedes the law of liberty. <clears throat> now, let's just talk for a minute about the consequences if we fail to heed Paul's command. I think this is interesting. It says, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now, you remember that Paul has called these people, who he refers to as the weak in the faith, he still calls them brother, right? These are Christians. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. He calls them that throughout the passage. So if these are Christians, how is it possible that we could destroy a brother? Now, what's at issue here, obviously, is the eternal security of a believer. Uh, is it true? Once saved, always saved. Well, the Greek word for destroy is the word apolumai, and it has a very wide range of meaning. It can mean to kill or destroy, but it also has a range that goes all the way over to, to spoil or to damage. Uh, so it can mean anything in between those two things. And I think in this context, it's pretty clear that it doesn't mean to destroy, uh, in other words, to, to have somebody lose their salvation so that they end up in hell. It means to damage that person's walk of discipleship. And here's why. 
Paul has been very clear throughout Romans, I think we would agree, especially in chapter 8, uh, that salvation is all God's work. It happens because of God's foreknowledge, because of his predestination, because of his calling, because of his election of his saints. And so God chooses who are his. He, he elects and he calls who will be saved. And God's salvation is irrevocable and it is unlosable. We cannot lose this salvation. To say that we can lose our salvation would be to say, when Jesus said, no one can pluck him out of my hands, that somehow we are stronger than Jesus. And we can, uh, even though uh, the, the word says we can't, we can somehow pluck somebody out of God's hands. That would be impossible. If God has ordained our salvation, and if Jesus died to purchase our salvation, and we have received the irrevocable free gift, well, we cannot lose our salvation, even by a sin against our own conscience, or any sin for that matter. Our salvation is secure. So we can't lose our salvation. As John MacArthur famously said, if a man could lose his salvation, he would, because it's not about, <clears throat> it's not about what we do. It's about God who's strong enough to hold us despite what we do. <clears throat> so rather, this destroying of your brother is not destroying him unto a loss of salvation. It's destroying his walk with Christ. It's damaging his walk with Christ, impeding or hindering uh, his growth in discipleship. So that's what's going on here about destroy. Now, if we do that, we learned last week that each one of us is going to give an account of himself to God. We talked about that in verses 1 to 12. So God won't revoke our salvation either, but he will hold us accountable if we put ourselves as a stumbling block in the place of a, of a growing disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that probably will come in the form of loss of rewards, but God will hold us accountable for that sin. So what it really comes down to uh, is for us, it's the value of food and drink or other gray matters versus the value of, of life and, and, and the, the walk of discipleship of uh, our brother or sister. Jesus gave up his life for our brother or sister. Uh, will we not sacrifice a meal or a drink or an outfit uh, for the sake of our brother or sister who is growing in Christ? So the first reason for our uh, liberty or that we curb our liberty in these disputable matters is that because Christ died for our brother too and we don't want to damage his walk by exercising our freedom in a way that offends him. The second reason to curb our liberty is because the kingdom of God is not about food. Verses 16 and 17, Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what we have in verse 16 here is just a restatement of uh, the principles that Paul laid out in verses 1 through 12. Accept one another despite our differences in matters of opinion. Do not revile uh, another person's opinion. Don't blaspheme it. Uh, don't allow your opinions to be spoken of in the same way. Because the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking, but rather it's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. You know, whenever I read through uh, Exodus and Leviticus, I don't know how recently you've done that, but if you read through those books, uh, there are heaps and heaps of rules and regulations about food and drink. Uh, so many foods are considered unclean, and even the foods that are considered clean have to go through certain ritual process of how they're prepared in order to remain clean. So they have to be prepared according to strict rules. Everything has to be kosher. And if you read the Old Testament only, 
Secondly, you might think that the kingdom of God is about food and drink, but it's not. Jesus came and he fulfilled the law and all of its ceremonial requirements, uh, including the laws of food and drink. So people no longer have to keep those laws because Christ is the end of the law for those who believe. And now the way to God is not through dietary laws and restrictions, but through the Lord Jesus Christ. He showed people the kingdom of God by showing them himself. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God is among you. It's in your midst, he said of himself. So the kingdom of God is righteousness. God declared us righteous when we received Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, we know that it's not that we are righteous, right? We certainly are not righteous. We have sinned, our records are stained, and we continue to sin even though we are Christians. But we are clothed in his righteousness. And God, when he looks at us, he sees us wrapped in the clothing of Jesus. And he declares us righteous by faith, even though we are stained by our sin because of our faith in Jesus And in heaven, the righteousness that we have, which is Jesus's righteousness, well, that is enough for God. And in in the kingdom, we will worship Jesus. We will not worship food and drink and we'll be there because God sees us as righteousness, righteous, not because we kept certain food and drink laws. So the kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's also about peace. You know, when God saves believers, He doesn't spare us from the pain and the conflict in this world, right? Anybody out there not have pain, not have conflict, not have difficulty? Anybody out there want to say, my life has been easy since I've become a Christian? Uh, Not many of us would say that, right? Because Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. That was a promise. And we've all experienced it because we live in a fallen world. But even though we live in a fallen world, God gives us his peace. We have peace with him, even though we have conflict in the world. uh, When a sinner believes and receives the Holy Spirit, he has peace with God. Now in heaven, it won't be like that with conflict everywhere. In in heaven, there will be no more conflict. There will be no more strife. God will, uh, Jesus will throw Satan and death into the lake of fire. There will be no more tears. And in heaven, we will rejoice because our broken relationship with God has been restored through the work of Jesus Christ. And we won't care about matters that are disputable like food and drink because that's not what the kingdom of heaven is about. The kingdom of heaven is about peace and it's about righteousness, not food and drink. And the kingdom of heaven is also about joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy is not the same as happiness as we know, right? Happiness is fleeting and it's depending on circumstances, but joy lasts and it's the result of knowing where we're going and and having this relationship with Jesus Christ uh, that will continue now uh, from the moment we became believers and into all of eternity. And our joy today is knowing that one day we are going to be with Jesus face to face because the kingdom of God is eternal. And the joy we, are, we experience on earth in food and drink or whatever else is, is just short-lived. It's a preview of the joys that we are going to have in heaven, but so incomparable to the joys that we are going to have in heaven. So to insist on our freedom about certain matters Uh, really is selfish and short-sighted when we consider that the kingdom of heaven is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and not about food and drink. It really is selfish when we want to insist on our rights 
regarding uh, these earthly matters. Uh, we need to lay them down for the sake of our brother or sister because that's not what the kingdom of God is all about. All right, so let's think about why we do that or the rewards of doing that in verses 18 to 21. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is not good to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So this idea of laying down our freedom, laying down our liberty, verse 18 says, the one who lives this way uh, serves Christ, is acceptable to God, and acceptable to men. Uh, that is a pretty good trifecta, right? You can't do much better than that. We serve God, serve Christ, we're acceptable to God, and even men accept us too. But if we insist on our liberty about food and drink, well, what will happen? We will certainly satisfy our own need to be right, which is a very human impulse, right? We want to be right. And we'll also satisfy our human appetite to participate in whatever this thing happens to be. But think about what we lose. We lose the great trifecta here. We don't serve Christ. We're not acceptable to God. And even men won't find us acceptable because uh, we are tearing them down instead of building them up. And so instead, verse 19 says, pursue peace with men and build them up. So this really ought to dispel all fights and petty arguments about disputable matters and gray issues. Uh, we as Christians should be known for setting these things aside, not fighting about such things when necessary for love's sake. So we don't have to insist that we are right on a given matter. It doesn't matter if we're right or wrong. It matters really what our brother or sister believes about that thing uh, and allowing them uh, the comfort uh, of having that opinion. So we need to just practice self-control because by doing that, we pursue peace with our brothers and sisters and help them pursue peace with Christ. Paul was convinced that he was right, but he called them brother or sister, and he didn't jam what he thought was right down their throats. He said, accept one another, and so we ought to do the same. Uh, to his brother with a weaker conscience, well, all things were not clean, so they had opposite opinions. So uh, why insist on exercising your liberty uh, in the presence of another brother or sister when the goal of all relationships is love, not pursuit of liberty. And that's what Jesus wants for us. So verses 20 to 21, Paul simply summarizes saying, don't tear down God's work for food. All things are clean, but someone else might disagree. So don't cause them to stumble by eating or drinking or doing anything that is going to cause someone else to stumble when you're in their presence. Now, let me just say, that if you're convinced about something, I'm just talking about when you're in their presence. Like if somebody is going to judge you, if you want to take a drink of alcohol or eat uh, pork or whatever it is that you want to do, if they want to do that, uh, judge you outside of your presence when you're living your life, well, that's on them at that point uh, because it says accept one another, right? So they need to accept you as well. But when, when we're in their presence, uh, we ought to do the best we can not to be a stumbling block uh, to them. So uh, the first reason there is that we have to curb our liberty, or the second reason is to curb our liberty because the kingdom of God is not about food and drink. And then the third reason to curb your liberty is to curb your liberty if you are not convinced. Verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. 
But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So Paul earlier has said, be convinced in your own mind. And we all, all ought to strive for that about disputable matters, to read, to pray, to study, and become convinced in our own mind about a gray matter. But now he says, once you are convinced about that matter, keep it to yourself. It's not a badge of honor to, to go about uh, flaunting our freedom. Uh, more of a badge of honor is to love our brother or sister who may disagree. Uh, we don't get to heaven by flaunting our freedom, and we don't earn God's uh, approval by that. If you've become convinced, great, good for you. That's what we ought to be doing. But now don't impose what you've decided about this freedom that you have on everyone else. Uh, it's not for you to decide what their opinion is about their freedom. Once we do that, we have become legalists. And nobody wants to be around a legalist. Legalists are no fun at all to be around. Because what they do is they have decided in their own mind what is right. And then they tell you now that you have to go along with what they believe about a certain uh, issue. And so a legalist insists that he's right. He makes everyone else conform to his or her own standards. Uh, and then what, does, what ends up happening is that God has given us freedom to choose, but then the legalist takes that freedom away by saying, no, you have to do it this way because I think I'm right and, and I say do it this way. Uh, so a legalist takes away the freedom that God has given. There's no love or grace in legalism. There's only the judgment of the legalist. So always remember grace. Now, how do we deal with people who have a different opinion than we do? There's, there's two different kinds of people who might have a different opinion than we do, right? You have a new believer, and he might not have the same opinion that you do because he hasn't been taught in the faith, and maybe as the Holy Spirit works in his life or her life, he may come to have your opinion. He may not, but he may come to have your opinion. He's just uh, not quite sure of yet, uh, as yet uh, whether he agrees with you or not. He needs to do some work, and the Holy Spirit needs to do some work on that person. And then the other kind of person who might not agree with you is somebody who has been a Christian for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Uh, they have become convinced in their own mind about a certain issue, and that's okay. We can have different opinions on certain matters and be brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So we don't go around calling somebody who has been a Christian for 60 years weak in the faith because they don't share our opinion, right? We, we don't do that. That's arrogant. That, that means everybody else has to believe what we believe. Uh, and we all have to recognize that we have blind spots. Uh, have you ever considered that you might be wrong about a certain matter, right? It's, that's possible. We could be wrong about a certain matter too. So we have to hold our own opinions loosely. With newer believers, uh, you know, it's good to disciple newer believers. The Bible is clear that we ought to do that, but we ought to also leave them room and freedom in these gray areas to grow and work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul said in Philippians. Uh, so that's what we do with the newer believers. Yes, disciple them. And with more mature believers, do you want to discuss? Do you want to debate? Do you, do you want to uh, talk about your opinion about these great issues? Fine, go ahead uh, for the sake of having fruitful discussion, but not for the sake of division. Remember grace. Knowing when to speak up as a believer and when to be silent takes mature Holy Spirit-led discernment. For us... For you and me, it should be enough for us. This should be satisfying to us uh, that our faith 
and our behavior match. That's not a hard thing to do, to act in accordance with your convictions all the time. There's all kinds of external pressures that might cause us to act outside of our present convictions. Uh, so verse 22 says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And if that's a little confusing, the NLT translates it, blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they've decided is right. And I would say it works vice versa too, uh, for doing something that they haven't decided is wrong. So it is a blessed thing. If your conscience and your behavior matches, well, you, have, you can put your head down on the pillow easy at night and rest because you have peace. You've gathered your evidence on this gray issue. You've made a decision and then you've basked in the freedom that God has given you. But on the opposite end of that is the people who act in contradiction to their consciences. They won't have peace because if they have doubt about a gray issue and then they act in contradiction to their conscience, uh, they won't have peace. They shouldn't do that thing or not do that thing until they've decided in their own minds that, that, they, uh, that it's okay and they make peace with that. Uh, if they act in contradiction to their consciences, well, then that is sin. A sin has happened, or sin can happen in a couple different ways. We know that anytime we violate a clear teaching of uh, God's word, well, yes, we have sinned. But here it says that we have also violated God's standards. We have sinned if we act in contradiction to our own consciences. So the Holy Spirit will do his work, right? Over time, the Holy Spirit does the convicting of sin, and he does it in God's perfect timing, and often much gentler than you and I can do it, right? Sometimes we can uh, come uh, across heavy-handed. Uh, the Holy Spirit is much more gentle than we are, and it's not our job to force our own opinions or, uh, or our own uh, thoughts about certain gray matters on others if doing so is going to violate their conscience. Let them have their own opinions about these things. Give them the freedom to do it. All right. We have covered a lot of ground today, and uh, I want to summarize now chapter 14. I have made a really cool flow chart. I hope you like this thing. This took me longer than my sermon. Uh, <laughs> So here's what we do. You see in the top left corner there, uh, this is, tells us what to do when we have a disputable matter. If it's a disputable matter, yes or no. If the answer is no down the left side, well, then that's simple. Follow the clear biblical teaching. Well, what about the other thing? Is it a disputable matter? If the answer is yes, well, the next thing you do, ask yourself, are you convinced in your own mind about this thing? And you can answer that in two ways, yes or no. If the answer is no, if you're not convinced about it in your own mind, then you abstain from whatever that thing is. If the answer is yes, we have to in inject another question, though, before we go ahead. Will it cause a brother or believer to stumble? Well, if the answer to that question is yes, then again, we abstain. If we're going to do that, uh, make somebody stumble, we don't do that in their presence. And if the answer is no, it's not going to cause a brother or believer to stumble. Well, then the answer is enjoy. And so that is uh, how we approach these, uh, these freedoms that we have in uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, decide for the sake of your brother or sister to set certain freedoms aside when necessary. Be convicted about what you believe about these things, absolutely. But the reason that we set our liberty aside is because Christ died to purchase the soul of our weaker brother. The kingdom of God is more important than food and drink, and because anything that we do that is not from faith is from sin. Well, 
I began talking uh, in this sermon this morning about the 4th of July and this great nation and all the freedoms that we have, but also mentioning warnings about the unrestrained exercise of freedom and how dangerous that can be. Uh, Jesus set us free from many of the laws uh, that we had to, or that the, the, the Jews had to keep in the first century. But with this freedom that we have, uh, also comes the power to sin, right? God has given us the power to sin. And when we sin, when we exercise our liberty in a way that causes another believer to stumble, well, God will call us to account for that. What is Christian liberty? It is the freedom to act as though we want to in accordance with our faith about disputable matters. When do we exercise it? When we are convicted in our own minds and we've decided that it's not sin. But when should we set it aside? Well, whenever the exercise of our liberty might cause another brother or sister to stumble. Simple, right? That's not too hard. And yet, sometimes we have a hard time with that because we are selfish and we demand our liberty no matter what. Well, if anyone ever laid down their freedom for the sake of love, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the freedoms that Jesus laid down for us when he became a man. He had to take on a human body with all its limitations and infirmities. And that's a significant loss of freedom when you are almighty, eternal God. Uh, he also set aside all the privileges of deity. He never stopped being God, even for a nanosecond. But he did stop using the privileges of deity, at least in a way that would have benefited him. He certainly healed other people, did things for other people. But he never used the deity of God to his own advantage though he had the power as creator of the universe to crush his enemies with a single word, he chose to set aside the freedom that he had, to lay it down and allow his enemies to nail him to a cross so that he would die for our sins and then rise from the dead. He exchanged his freedom and his liberty for love. And as he says to us, now go and do the same. Let's pray. Lord God, we do love our freedoms, and we love the freedom that we have as Americans in this great country of ours. Lord, we have freedoms that our country gives us, and then we have freedoms that you give us. And Lord, help us to know when to exercise our freedoms and when to lay them aside for the sake of another brother, for the sake of love. Lord, that we might uh, truly be your disciples, uh, Lord, that we might love others the way you love them. Lord, help us to do these things. Help us to recognize opportunities to show people that we love them by how we behave, knowing that we have the right to do something, but we choose not to do it for their sake, Lord, and that we'd know the love of Christ through us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.